Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the First Act podcast. This is part three of Startups Funding and Going to Market with Ryan O'Connor. Starting his career in ticketing, Ryan has become an accomplished advisor, consultant, and senior executive who builds companies, helps secure funding, and guides them through to acquisitions. Be a sponge with me today as we soak in some business knowledge from this MBA. Tune in now. And now, hosted by Harry G., this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, cause we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. You come from a music background, and you were part of a very important or critical deal in the music and tech industry, and then you kind of just pivoted outside of music. You weave in and out, right? It's all around go to market though. And I think that was the thing. It was just kind of like another test to like, like can I do this outside of music tech? Because music tech, let's be very clear, is small. It's small. And so it's like, and a lot of investors, now the creator economy is, is taking off. You know, so I'm dating myself by like five or seven years. You know, I think that I think you know, creators are really it's it's time for that industry to really kind of take ownership back of itself. Just everything going on with like decentralization and and you know, NFTs and, and that sort of thing. But you know, music tech is also largely viewed as uninvestable. A lot of VCs sort of shy away from it because they think the the addressable market is just too small. So to me, it was just like, okay, this is something totally new. It's a new product. But what I what I learned really quickly was like, it's the same dance steps. It's just it's kind of, it's just a different market. It still works. It's just about like the product that you're selling. So that's that was the explanation for the weave. But at the end of the day, you got to really like what you're doing. Is what I found, and so. SaaS in general, I don't know if I could ever just do sort of a, a generic SaaS platform that's you know in some real esoteric industry. Unless the money was crazy, to me it's just sort of like like at the end of the day, you know, what are we putting on the board? What are we what are we doing with our time? And so music has always kind of called me back. And so now you're over at Docsend. What were you doing there? Were you consulting? Straight up biz dev, director of business development, helping figure out they had this really great product, have a really great product. They just sold the Dropbox for 160, I think it was a couple of months ago. And it was document tracking software. Every VC knew about it, every startup founder knew about it. And so the real challenge was okay, like how do we elevate to the enterprise? You know, we've got this like long tail approach, which is like we're going to eat up all these signups that are kind of coming through our website. But who's going to go out there with like a spear and a shield and, and go and take down whales? And so that was kind of the challenge in front of us. And in that, you know, you sort of do a lot of discovery of who is Doxin really, really amazing for. If you're like a long tail product, very horizontal, you're kind of like you're good for many, but great for nobody is sort of the general saying. I'm not saying that's true of Doxin, but just as a general like statement of, of the way software sort of works. Unless you're really solving a specific problem for a specific group of people, it's kind of hard to dig deep on any one category. So we uncovered that media was a great use case. Uh, and this was just for a lot of calling and questioning, trying to figure out our customer base. And so what's the strategy of like getting every major media account that we possibly can and reshaping all of our sales materials to speak to that audience? And so through that, you know, we signed the New York Times. I think we signed, was it Fortune? Conversant, a bunch of folks, Samba TV, a bunch of folks in the media space because it just it just worked really, really well. And so just hammered on that. I got to do some fun stuff too. You know, I got to do like TV interviews on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, which was fun. But that was a more tried and true just sales experience. And that was great. And I adore the founders of it. Dave and Russ and I like still text and we still we still keep in touch. But around the time after about a year or so, 
it kind of became clear that I was challenged selling it really into the enterprise, like sort of as is. And the strategy of the company started to shift as well. And it just sort of generally, like naturally sort of drew apart. Nobody's fault. But it became clear that it was time to figure out what was next. And at that time is when I got my phone call from my old boss at Ticketfly, Dan Turee, who was working on a blockchain-related project with another person who I had done business with on and off for 10 years, and then a third co-founder who was very, very deep in the crypto space. And so I just, like Mary Poppins, moved on over into that role and started with them. And on the side, a lot of advisory work for accelerators and doing sales workshops and just being present in that ecosystem and just being known as somebody who'll always take a phone call, always give advice, always make an introduction. Like That was really when it kind of started to pick up when I was in New York at Docsend and at One Fine Stay because I just... As a consultant at One Fine Stay, it was very clear, like, I've got to figure out what my next gig is going to be because this is not going to last forever. That's the nature of consulting. And so it was that's when I just dove in and started going to every meetup I could and started getting friendly with a really great accelerator in New York, became friends with the founders of, of that accelerator, and just started becoming a resource, not paid, just a friendly face to show up and to like sit, do workshops, even like sit and help sales, like SDRs cold call and just like be on the phone with them and then take the phone, turn it around, start dialing and start like pounding their list of prospects and seeing if I can break them up for them. So like just in earnest, just giving your time, which is paid back because you know I picked up more consulting work through that while working at Atari Labs. So it just, uh, it just started to become this self-fulfilling prophecy. Wow. I, I have so many questions for you. The first one is around consulting. How do you know how to price yourself? It's a great question. Um, so, you know, a lot of people have theories on this. You know, the the most direct route is to go kind of the hourly route. And I kind of barf on that because if you're hiring somebody for the experience, they're not going to take as much time. And so then you have to compensate for the speed that you deliver your product with a really, really high hourly rate. And that just looks kind of scary. So you can back into what you feel like the market would pay you if you went full time. Add on top, because as many will find the hard way as I did the first year, the tax man, you have to pay unemployment tax that otherwise would have been paid by your employer. There's a lot of nickel and diming on that. The nice part is, is that like you can you can write off a lot of a lot of your expenses, not all of them. But if you're a consultant, you're pretty much running at like 80, 85% margins. So there's not a ton of like, it's not like you're running like a like a agriculture plant, you know, where you're you know buying tractors and depreciating them. It's really just your time and your efforts. It's knowledge work. It's all knowledge work. Get a sense of what you feel like you would make in the market. Add a premium for that. And maybe a little more premium for the fact that you're going to have an occupancy rate, right? You're not going to be maxed out at 100%. It's kind of the way like hotels price, right? And then what I like to do is at this point, I basically sell chunks of my time, you know, in sort of generalities where it's like someone's like, hey, I think I need you half time. I say, okay, cool. Well, my full time rate is going to be somewhere in the market of like 30, 35,000 a month. And then we'll take that and we'll just chop it in half. And we'll be on the honor code that this will get done. And we're going to put together a scope of work. And that scope of work is going to be something, you know, around like X amount of pilots, Y amount of meetings, revamping or getting all the sales materials ready for prime time, building out the CRM, building out the sales enablement stack, build, you know, all what are the three buckets and keep them accountable, but keep them loose because things are going to change and generally agree that, okay, this may take three and a half, four, maybe five months at half time. So this is kind of the ballpark of the budget and then execute and then deliver. 
I like to, with its early stage companies, to the extent it's appropriate, I ask for advisory shares just because I like to collect the lottery tickets. You know, that for me is fun. It also kind of aligns incentives. It's usually a small percentage, right? For an advisor role. Very small. Yeah, very small percentage. But it scales based on, you know, what you're doing and how much time they need from you. There's an article in TechCrunch published like a, a paper on it. It basically scales from like 10 basis points, which is uh, you know, 0.1% to 75 basis points, maybe a full percentage in the company, depending on how early you are and how often and regular that you're needed. And if there's any existing cash component, like you really truly are like a part-time employee. It's a small percentage. For those, you know, who are curious, they typically run about two years, you know, to vest. They vest over, you know, a 24-month period. So every month you're getting more of the shares you've agreed to. It's all at will. So, you know, they can can me anytime and the vesting stops. And so, you know, so you have to build up a layer of trust on the front end. Uh, so that's that's generally sort of how things get priced out. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I was going to ask also, like, if you ever take equity and like, you know, like you, you were involved in Ticketfly very early on and, and in Will Call and like, were you given any sort of equity in these deals or were, were you still so junior that you didn't know how these things worked yet? Like, how, how did that all go down? Oh, it's a great question. The Ticketfly one is interesting. Um, I was too junior. So that's the thing. So the amount of equity you're going to get, especially if you're coming out of college, lower your expectations. When founders create a company, they create an employee equity pool. It's around 15 to 20-ish percent of the overall equity that they're going to dole out. Okay, So they're going to pull from that to give everybody equity. So if you think about a company that ends up being 500 people, you know, 500 people splitting that, like, that part of the pie you're not getting a big chunk of the company. The earlier you are, the more senior you are. And honestly, the role that you're taking on, if it's a technical role, like a head of engineering or that type of thing, um, you're typically entitled to more of the company. Like You can start to get in the single-digit percentage points if you're that early and that committed to it. As the company grows or you come on as more junior, they're going to have a pretty standard package that's going to you know, end up being a few basis points in my opinion, you should have a grip on that, just an understanding of that as you're talking to your hiring manager around, okay, you know, how is this reflected in the current value of the company? Like, just try to get them to give you an apples to apples comparison of like a dollar figure, which will be loose. And folks may be a little hand wavy, especially in those early days, because they're not really pinned to a formal 409 valuation because they are so early. So you just got to keep that in mind when negotiating the, the cash component of your, of your agreement. It's like cash is really king. And like, unless you are so insanely early and so insanely senior, that equity is probably not going to make up for the gap in salary decrease that they say it's going to be. That's how I view it. That makes sense. And that, I think that's actually very valuable information for, for anybody who wants to delve into the startup world, uh, whether it's in media, entertainment, or anything else that they might be interested in going to. Next question was really, how do you identify a good company and know where to take it? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's like a loose formula that I've used that has worked for me when it's all checked out and blown up in my face when I haven't followed this. So, you know, it's this is my own personal view on it. Is that a great company has to have a great founding team? What do I mean by that? I mean it has to have a team that's experienced and seasoned. 
with Ticket Fly, this was their round two. They had already had an exit with Ticket Web, which was the first dot com to ever sell a concert ticket on the internet. So that to me was that's validation. These folks know exactly what they're doing. The strategy was basically Ticket Web 2.0. They're going to go up with the same clients, you know, but with a, a really innovative pitch. And that's the second piece. Like, what is the product? Is it really solving a pain point? And in Ticket Fly's case, what it was doing is that it was it was sort of integrating all of the key marketing assets that a promoter or a venue used. So in the old days, the old version was a promoter or a venue owner. Like if you're you're in New York City or Brooklyn Bowl, the promoter would have to create the event in their ticketing software, then go to a different piece of software and update it on their website, and then go to a different piece of software and update it in their newsletter and a different and a different and a different and a different. And that's just that's time and money. And so what Ticketfly did was just through APIs, it just it created a CMS through its ticketing system. So if you created the event in the ticketing system, the APIs just popped out to everything else. Easy peasy. And because it did that, and all the payment flows came through the ticketing system because they are the they're the, they're the merchant of record. They just sit on all the customer data. So they could create these really gorgeous dashboards about like your audience and all this stuff that just like Venues and promoters, just these are mostly small to medium-sized businesses. These are not like large companies um, outside of like Live Nation AEG. So these are typically it's like it comes down to some people have professional marketers on their teams, but most it's it's an intern or somebody you know relatively young or junior. Right. So getting them anything that saved them time and also made them smarter at their business. That was the innovation of the time. Now, 10 years later, it's industry standard. That was the innovation. And then third is the money that's going into it. Founders are proven product to a layperson feels like it's a big innovation. And then third is the, is the money. And that was, uh, you know, Bob Green, Contra Ventures, he's a early stage fund. He's, he's small, it's him and a partner, you know, but they were on their like, I don't know how many funds they had raised at that point for their firm, which is impressive in and of itself. And the portfolio was doing great. I mean, they were in early now, you know, in hindsight, they're still in, I believe it's Datadog, which is like one of the most valuable tech companies in New York City. And they were like there like on day one. And you, know, you can rinse and repeat that for a few others. So like, do these folks, are they great deployers of capital? Are they great investors? And that answer was yes. So I was like, okay, well then trying to optimize for everything else. Like if you got those three in line, then you're, you're doing great. You know, so... Every time it's worked out, like those three things have been in place. And so, and when it hasn't worked out, like one of the two, having two of the three is still good, but it's, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. Okay. So you've been a part of a number of different exits, right? Mm -hmm. Are there any in particular that were particularly meaningful to you? And what are some life lessons that you've learned? Yeah, sure. So my dad has a saying that all of life's lessons come with tuition. You end up paying for it somehow. So, you know, to me, it, it was after my experience, Ticket Flight was great, but I was too junior. And when I left and I had this window to exercise my options, I didn't exercise all of them just because like I just didn't have the cash. Exercise means that you you spend money to get that equity? Correct. Yeah. This is actually, and this is a little bit of a nuanced topic for like a beginner podcast, but I'm happy to do it. In early stage equity, in early stage equity, when you get options, options are the right to buy, but not the obligation. Meaning, no one's putting a gun to your head saying you got to buy the ship. In these options, there are a few mechanics, and there's a there's a window to exercise, and that window is basically the period you have to, if you decide you want to buy, when you got to buy them, and. Uh, if you're so long as you're working with the company, that window's never triggered. As long as you're working there, it just doesn't occur. When it does happen is when you decide to leave the company or you're terminated. And the window is typically 90 days. 
And so what you're going to have to do within 90 days is cough up the amount of money to buy the shares and hold them. What that does is that creates a taxable event for you as the shareholder. And so what people assume happens is that a cashless exercise occurs like in the event of an IPO where the company is acquired by a competitor or whatever. So when the company is acquired by a competitor, what eventually happened with Pandora was we got a letter from you know Pandora's team, super standard stuff like, hey, we're purchasing the shares at X amount of dollars. You are holding Y amount of options at this amount. We're just going to give you the difference. Adios. That's a cashless exercise. That's what everybody's like trying to optimize for, especially in your early in career. But if you end up leaving, you kind of have this really shitty decision to make, which is, okay, what's the path to liquidity here? Like, will this thing ever exit? If so, am I cool with spending all this money now and also paying, by the way, like AMT, which is which is a fun tax that you have to pay when you exercise these options and just sit and hold and pray that something eventually kind of happens. And now you're on the outside of the company. Like you don't know what's going on. Like you have no information on like what's the potential here. And that's really, really rough on early stage employees. And you're seeing some adjustments on that. Some companies like are making their are extending their windows much, much longer. I've seen three years, four years, five years put on there. And my advisory shares, I asked for 10 years. I asked for a 10 year window because I want to keep that window as wide as possible in the event there's a liquidity event, and then I can determine what I want to do, as opposed to being forced into a financial decision that may or may not work out for many, many years. So those those kinds of deals exist. That like like let's say let's say you had a ten year window, you leave after year three, right? So you still have seven years to decide if you want to then buy that equity. Is that right? No, I have ten years. Ten years from when I split from the moment I leave. Yeah. Okay, and then and then what about if a year later? Oh, I'm sorry. A little nuance in advisory agreements when you're not an employee, it's like the window starts when you start to vest. Like that's when the window kicks in. So like in employment agreements, it's from the date you leave the company, whether voluntarily or through termination. Right. You have this this large window. We'll say ten years. But then what happens if the company is sold or has some sort of a deal that happens within the next twenty four months? That's ideally what you want. Yeah. So you have the choice then, right then and there to say, well, you know what, am I going to fork up the cash to actually sell my... It's, it's kind of a no-brainer at that point, right? It is isn't exactly right. Because then you say, okay, well, what's the offer? If it's beyond my exercise price, then sure, I'll exercise and I'll take the Delta. Yeah. But that's a really like, that's like the chimp simple way to think about it. And that's why you want that window to be as long as possible. So that like, if it's within 24 months or seven years, you don't have your back against the wall to like make a financial decision. When you're dealing with a highly volatile asset, then all likely in all likelihood will go to zero. That's just the game of startups, right? That's why like I have a particular bone when it comes to early stage equity and how that's sort of structured. It's so opaque, the pricing, you don't you don't really understand it. So that was the lesson. I honestly should have tried to find something like get friends to pitch in or whatever, but like that was a six-figure mistake for me. I exercised some of it. It was it was great. It was fine. It was, you know, better than a sharp stick in the eye, as my wife affectionately refers to it. But that gets you smarter, right? It gets you smarter. Because when you have skin in the game and you see it, you get smarter with your deals down the road. So that was the value I got out of that. And yeah, like I've had companies have good outcomes and it's been fine. And you know, it's 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 what keeps me in the game for sure. It's definitely something that I consider in everything that I do. All right. I want to be respectful of your time. So I've got one last question. All right, before we wrap up. Cool. So this one's more for the students out there. So, you know, you did your undergrad in music, but then you did do grad school and you were in business. And a lot of the kids that do listen to the podcast, there is a healthy split of business students. Do you think that all of those business students have the capability to reach that financial freedom, that they can all become millionaires and be crushing it? Um, no, 
if you're a student listening to this, here's the best advice I'm going to give you. And I got it in grad school is that go ahead and fire 90% of your classmates. You're going to find about 10% of the people that you're going to school with are really worth doing business with for the next like 10, 20, 30 years. Um, that's what I found. And if you can't identify that 10%, you're probably not in it. The reality is, is like there is no silver bullet here for becoming successful. And however you decide what your number is, financial freedom, you know, 1 million, 10 million, whatever. I think, is it possible? Absolutely. What I would say to optimize for that success is I would get as much experience in an early stage company as I could. I guess there's two ways you could go about it. You can view it as like going to a big company like a Goldman Sachs and I get amazing training, amazing, stunning training, right? I can always punch down. I can always go to a startup. They'll always take me. Or a really well-financed startup where it's like a Series C, Series D. Because at that point, it's not really a startup. You got like half a billion dollars raised. So there's one path you can do. The other path is to go and join an early stage company with a really great founding team. Not like some fucking 24-year-old, 25-year-old who got lucky in Bitcoin is like, you know, spending money and building companies just because they, you know, they got nothing else to do. There's so many of those. <laughs> yeah, there's a ton of them. And mazel on them, mazel on them. It's like there are real savvy players in that space, 100%. I don't doubt that. You know, I've got a couple of friends who've done exceptionally well in that space and they continue to. And it's just not like, it's like poker, right? Like the same guys show up to the, the World Series. They're not the luckiest guys, you know, on the planet. Like there's a skill there. But what I'm saying is that if you're going to go that startup route, make sure that you are doing it with a CEO or founding team that is seasoned and weathered and knows how to do this right. Otherwise, it's really the blind leading the blind. I do believe that wealth generation is achieved when you go in early. That's been a strategy that's worked for me and it's worked for a lot of my friends. I guess it's also about what do you want to do with your time and what do you want to build? Because look, if you go work at Goldman and you go make it to managing direct, you're a minted millionaire. That's a foregone conclusion. Like if you're not, there's something going kind of wrong there, right? It's a lot riskier in the startup world. But if you don't have access to that, to those networks and or can't get into them for one reason or another, you know, the other path is building your own. That's sort of like the force multiplier in all of this. Does the the value create in your equity outpace what you're getting on a cash comp basis. But also, like I'll tell you, the process is just slow. I listened to Scott Galloway, who has a, a great podcast, and he's like, I can get you rich. Bad news is it's slowly. And that's also true. It's just like, you know, we like there's no tricks with building wealth. Like we save a ton and we put it in the market and we don't touch it. We're in very like unsexy things that, you know, that just not like gonna blow anybody's hair back. And so I view the speculative pieces of our investments as the as the equity that we collect in our startups. I view that as like my high risk pool of assets. But I'm very we we are, you know, back to having a great partner. We're very, very steady, Freddie, and disciplined with how we grow our wealth. We think long term. So that's my answer for you. Yeah, it's definitely possible, but like it's just you get a business degree. I know a lot of kids with MBAs who are broke. So, All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. This has been a breath of fresh air. It's a little bit of a different take on the podcast today because we spoke a little bit more about funding and we spoke about startups. And usually the deepest we'll go into tech is talking a little bit about like the music tech space. But this has been really insightful for me also as I have a background in accounting. Sure. I've bragged about so many times on here and probably actually cried about it a few times. But <laughs> I still have nightmares over FIFO and LIFO, man. 
Like I just, I still like, I get nauseous when I think about figuring out which depreciation method I should apply to hardware or whatever it is. So if you got through that, like absolutely mazel, mazel tov to you, buddy. I mean, that's like, that's an achievement. I love that because I'm Jewish and you're, you're not. And then you've got the Christmas tree in the back, but you're the one using my words. <laughs> I went to Baruch too. Baruch Hatar and I, I've hunted for the Afe Komen. I get it, man. I mean, like when you grow up in New Jersey, it's just like everybody's mixed in together. So I have lots of aunts and uncles where, you know, we we would uh, we have a Christmas tree and make latkes and that was our, you know, for Passover. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun, man. It's great. This was a pleasure, dude. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you being, you know, all the time that you gave for the podcast. This has been so much fun. Well, my pleasure. Anybody who's listening, uh, who wants to reach out or get in touch with me, feel free to. I'm easy to find. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I'll always give you a quick hit back. Yeah, I'm glad you do this. I'm glad you've provided a platform for folks who are getting into it. I wish I had something like this. And I wish I had, you know, if I, this is my opportunity for my almost 40-year-old self to talk to my 20-year-old self. This is a, This is a fun way to do it. Hey everyone, just wanted to check back in and shout all of you out who are taking the time to check out the podcast, especially those of you who have been sharing it with your friends and writing me such nice messages on Apple Podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you or someone you know has an awesome story that you think should be shared with the world, feel free to write me directly on any of our socials at The First Act Podcast. Until then, stay safe.